Well, good morning, everybody. How are you guys? Good. 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 All right. Well, okay, we got some good. We got some. We got some people that are awake here. All right. Well, um, this morning we are wrapping up our series on um, the fruit. The fruit. Oh man, the fruit of the spirit. I want. I spent 12 years as an editor, and so it's grammatically correct to say the, you know not to have fruit being singular. It's like you want to say fruits, but it's not. It's fruit. So sorry. I just read the trail. I did a geek trail there. Anyways, so we are finishing up on the fruit of the Spirit. And last week I spoke on the real crowd pleaser, which was self-control. And uh, Josh wanted to bookend the series with love. Remember, love was the first fruit. And then we're going to end on love. We'll talk about love today as well. Um, now, I have lovely fillings for you guys. So for those of you that are like... Let's just get to the fill-in. Your pencil's just, you're like, I gotta fill it in. The first one that we're going to do is we have to get love to give it. Usually we say we have to give love to get it, right? But it actually works like this. You have to get love to give it. Let's look at some scripture. John 15, 9-11 says... As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So let me just break it down for you real quickly. This whole idea of, of love is not, um, it doesn't come from the Lifetime movies that they have on the Lifetime channel about love and it's not a Hallmark card idea of love. The type of love that we're talking about is a supernatural love, and that it is born from the Spirit, and it is birthed in our hearts. It's not anything that we can just, if I just concentrate, it's like self-control or any of the other fruit, fruit of this, fruits of this, I'm just going to say fruits, I'm going to break down and say fruits of the Spirit. <laughs> We can pretend to love people. We can act like we love people. We can pretend like we have self-control. We can fake it to a certain extent. But when push comes to shove, our true colors are going to come out. That is why we need the power of the Holy Spirit to produce these things in our hearts. Because our souls are... The humans are... We can do good stuff, but we have, we have souls that have been twisted by the fall. So we need the Holy Spirit to come into our hearts and straighten things out, and make light in dark places. So in John 15, 9-11, how, how do we learn to love? We have to look to the, our Father in Heaven and in Jesus. Jesus himself says he learns how to love, right? Because that's what his dad does. Well, guess what? We're, 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 we're God's kids too. We learn by observing and receiving love from God. Okay? And how does that happen? Is there a rule book? Is there a, is there a script that we follow? Is there a 12-week course? Is there a YouTube video? No. How do we do this? How do we learn to get love from God? We have to abide with God. We abide with God. Well, how do we do that? Maybe you're saying, well, that's cool, Mako, but what does that look like? Let's look at Luke 10, 38-42. <clears throat> and this is um, 
Jesus has come to the house of Mary and Martha, okay? And so Martha is, probably if you did a personality test on her, she'd be like a triple type A personality. She's not like a type A. She's like a type A, type A, type A, type, just totally high strung, like, got to get it done, let's get on it. Everything's perfect. Perfect, organized, the food's ready to go, right? So she's got Jesus coming to the house. And um, she's like, she's on it, man. She's like, there's like not a speck of dust anywhere. Everything has to be perfect. The food has to look perfect and be just hot right out of the oven, right? And then you've got Mary, her sister, which is the opposite side of things. So that's what we're going to kind of read about. Um, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Uh, I just think this is funny, because this is Jesus Christ, right? This is God incarnate, okay? But Martha doesn't hear that this is Jesus, or the, 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 you know, the second person in the Trinity that helped make the universe, right? She comes up to him and she says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. I just think that is so funny. She comes to Jesus and she's like, this is great what's going on, but you need to tell my sister to get up and help me because we got stuff to do, okay? <laughs> and how does Jesus respond? I just love his response. It's so tender. He says, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her. I just love this, and especially with going into the holiday season. I don't know about you guys, but I start going crazy. Like, because it's just like there's, you know, and if you have kids, you got to get some little gifts for the teachers, and then you can't leave out the custodian, because you don't want the custodian to fill out out. And, and, you know, you have to just remember the art teacher and the ladies in the front office, and, and you know, the piano teacher, the dance, all, right? all this stuff, right? And then there's classroom parties, and then there's, like, Thank you. all this stuff that you have to do, and then you, like, buy food, and then you have to make it, and it's just like this rush, and it's like, oh my gosh, there's only how many days till Christmas? Ah, and you start feeling the crunch. It's like, the time is a ticket. And I think this story is especially pertinent to us right now. Because we're in the midst of it, and Americans, man, we don't stop for anything. Do you know Southern California has the greatest concentration of drive-thru Starbucks in the country? And they did that on purpose to cater to our culture. We don't even have, we don't have time to stop and drink our coffee even. We just get it to go. And then we have this story. Can we bring up the picture of the two ladies, please? Okay, so this is a picture by this Dutch guy named Vermeer. And so this kind of, I just love this picture because it really, there's Martha bossing Jesus, Christ, <laughs> our Lord and Savior around, right? And, and what is Mary's posture? She's just, yeah, she's just like, it doesn't happen very often now, but when I talk to Sophia and we're talking about stuff, every now and then she used to do it a lot when she was a baby, right? She was like, just, like, just completely enthralled. She, Mary is completely enthralled in what Jesus is saying. Doesn't have an agenda, even though her sister wants her to get up and help her cook. She's just, she's just, 
she's just like absorbing everything. She's like a growing plant, and Jesus is the sun. And she's just like basking in his presence, taking it all in. And Martha's like, no, this is good, but whatever. Who cares about eternity and growing? Get up. we got stuff to do. Here's the deal, though. Mary got what was important. And I'm not saying that we, it would be nice if we could just sit in God's presence 24-7, right? Not have to worry about putting gas in our car or doing grocery shopping or paying our bills or whatever. So I'm not saying that we can't do stuff and we don't have to do stuff. But Jesus says, and he doesn't say the other stuff is not, don't do the other stuff. He said it's not important. But Mary gets what's important. This is how we learn about love. We sit at the feet of Jesus. And we can look like we're sitting at the feet of Jesus externally, right? We can go to the food bank. We can do prayer. We can pray for people. We can be really consistent in our devotions. We can come to Bible study. We can um, do really kind, selfless things for people. But what's our inward posture? Ask yourselves that. What is your inward posture towards Jesus? Are you sitting at Jesus' feet? I have had to learn over the years just through health stuff, man. You know, you guys know about my back. I have lots of back issues. And uh, I'm, I'm like, I have to be up and be physical and be busy. If I don't, I just go bonkers. And God's been like, you know what? We're going to work on that. <laughs> and so over the years, I still struggle with it. <clears throat> but I have had to learn the importance of sitting at God's feet, at Jesus' feet. And I'm, I still have a long ways to go. Because more often than not, I'm like, I'm like, Jesus, this is great. This discussion that we're having, but I gotta go. I gotta, I gotta go. I got stuff to do. You know what I start doing sometimes? I drop my daughter off at her school at eight, and then, and this is how you can incorporate this into your life. It doesn't have to be a major thing like this is my ten-point program to getting closer to Jesus and abiding in Jesus. So what I do is I drop my daughter off at school, and then I beat it over to the gym, and I'll sit in the car drink my coffee because I need more coffee to wake up. But I'll just sit. I'll turn the radio off and I'll just sit and just talk to God. God, I'm still really tired. Can you please, you know, multiply this coffee in my body? God, I pray for my daughter. Give her favor at school. God, that person that I talked to yesterday, can you just bless them? God, help me to be open to you and be sensitive to you. Just figure out Pockets in your day where you can just sit at Jesus' feet and abide. That's how we learn to love. There's the bigger stuff, which is great, right? When we go to crusades or we go to, um, I got an opportunity to go to this Bethel Music Conference, which was amazing, and do worship. But you know that, I actually, we were, when we were in there, we were listening, we were doing the worship and stuff, I actually started to get a little itchy. I was like, I got stuff I gotta do, I could be doing this right now, and then God was like, hello? Hello, I need you to sit and worship me. It was just like, I was like, okay, God, I'm going to press into you more. I'm going to press into you more. And God spoke to me in ways that I've not heard him do in a long time because I haven't sat still long enough in his presence. I haven't been a Mary. So, in order to give love, which is the fruit of the Spirit, we have to receive it. And this is how we receive it. Amen? Amen. All right. 
Let's move on to number two. This is for you uh, Walking Dead fans out there. Love rescues us from being spiritual zombies. Okay, here's the deal. Just because we're alive doesn't mean we're living. I know about you guys, but I have met Christians that you know that they're going to heaven. They've accepted Jesus in their heart. They're, they're sealed, signed, and delivered. But they are just mean, cranky people. You're like, where's the joy of Jesus in your life? Like, it's missing. They don't have it. And I think sometimes we can fall into that, where we just, we get so caught up in the day-to-day, -day, or we get so caught up in our stuff, and I'm not saying that, you know, we can't go through life and be like, this stinks, this is really gnarly, this is not fun, whatever. But God's like, I, I called you, I gave you a new heart, you need to live like that. But we forget, I think, sometimes, don't we? We're like, we're going to live according to the old man. We're going to try to fix everything ourselves. We're going to straighten everything out for ourselves. Let's look at a verse. Ezekiel 36.26 says, I will give you a new heart. This is God speaking to the Israelites. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I think... When God wrote this here, even though this is Old Testament, I think he probably had in mind, maybe, even it's like a foreshadowing to Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. Where Nicodemus was a tax collector, right? He was a tax collector. And Jesus has this conversation. Oh, no, he's a Pharisee. Pharisee, right? He's a Pharisee. Pharisee tax collector, right? <laughs> but so he's talking to Jesus, engaging in this conversation with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus, um, he doesn't quite get it. He kind of he kind of gets the idea. Because you're just like, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, well, I'm kind of large, and I'm an old man. I understand how hot I can get, get rebirthed. How does that work? He's like, no, 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 no. The rebirth comes from the heart. God says, I'm going to take your wicked heart, calloused heart. Maybe it's not even wicked. Maybe it's just a heart that's been trampled on so much and broken you have people fail you and hurt you, that in response you're like, okay, I'm sealing myself off. I'm doing a heart of stone thing. That way nobody, nothing gets out and nothing gets in. But guess what? God's like, I didn't create you to be like that. I created you to have a heart of flesh. I created you to have my heart. See, here's the deal. When we have a heart of stone and we claim to love Jesus, our heart can't break for the things that break Jesus' heart. When we have a heart of stone, we cling on to that. Jesus can come and say, look at this person. You need to go talk to them. This person needs a hug. He can say, no, that person stinks, but that person bugs me. No way. Our hearts have to be broken over the things that break Jesus' heart. And you can only do that when you have a heart of flesh on a heart of spirit. Let me show you a picture. Can we bring up the brain picture? So it's this whole idea that love breathes life into situations, into people. Now let me show you guys something. Okay, so this is a topical view of two brains. They're both three-year-old kids. 
the kid on the right, I mean, it's just mind-blowing, the difference, was it that the mom was a abusive, not nurturing, didn't hold the kid when the kid cried, and look how small the brain is. On the left is a brain of uh, a kid that, that, that the mom was invested in the child when the kid cried. The mom would come and hold the kid, scrape the knee, hold the kid, okay? Nurture the child. No nurturing going on on the right side. And it's heartbreaking. Here's what I want us to get, though. When God talks about stuff like this, when he says that love nurtures, love cultivates things. Love reanimates things that were long dead. Not that we need science to prove the Bible, but when science aligns with what the Bible says, it blows my mind. I'm like, holy cow. The Bible was written thousands of years ago. But look at this stuff is real. Love nurtures. Love increases. Love brings things to light. I mean, this is not hocus pocus. This is like, this was pulled from like, I don't know, American Psychological Journal or something. This, this is amazing. This is the impact of love. And you take this and you extrapolate it in your life. And you say, A, God, are there people that I can be pouring into right now that are not? And maybe it's your own family. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's a strained relationship with a friend. Whatever. Love resuscitates dead things. And it causes things to grow and to flourish. And as Christ followers, that is what we're called to do. We can't do it on our own power. We have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's going to get us to the next point. All right, so here's real, real, real quick here. Maybe you're like, I know that's cool, but let me challenge you. Ask yourself if there's somebody in your life this week that you can pour into a little bit. You know, is there a relationship that's, I don't know, whatever. If maybe it can be your barista or your, the, the post person, or maybe you have a cranky neighbor. Is there somebody that you can just, when you ask them how they're doing, actually look in their eyes? And care about their response. You don't have to have a counseling session, but say, how are you doing? And really mean it. And when you ask them, see them. Don't see them right in front of you, but see them as a person. Say, how are you? How are you doing today? Not so good, what's going on? Maybe give somebody a little note. Say, hey, thinking about you, praying about you today. Have a great day. Whatever. Love can resuscitate and nurtures and cultivates growth. Right. All right, point number three. Love embraces the unlovable. So love embraces the unlovable. Now, we are called to have, right, we call ourselves Christ followers, right? So that means that there's a family resemblance which means that we're supposed to look like Jesus. Well, what did Jesus do? Jesus loved the ugly people, the unlovable people, the cranky people. The people that were like, get off me, don't touch me. 
This is my bubble. If you cross it, I'll kill you. Don't come in here. Jesus loved on those people. Loved on them. And why should we do it too? Well, guess what? Because uh, Romans 5, 8, if we could get that up on the screen. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. So this isn't just some cosmic good vibe energy that's flowing through the universe. This love is coming from the heart of God himself. And he loved us so much that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. That means Jesus saw us when we were just nasty, gross, icky, ugly, nasty people. And he reached out and he picked us up and he said, I don't see you like this. This is what you look like, but this isn't who you are. You're beautiful in my eyes. You're precious in my eyes. And this wasn't, Jesus didn't say, okay, let's make a deal. So here's what I'm willing to do for you. I'm willing to redeem you from damnation, give you eternal life. You get to hang out in a pretty cool place in heaven. You have a mansion. You agree to these terms. Okay, great. Sign here, and I'm going to go ahead and die for you and redeem you. No, Jesus did it first. He did it first. And because Jesus did it first, we are called to do likewise. It's not conditional. Our love that we are called to show to other people, the cranky ones, the ugly ones, the people that act ugly, there's no condition attached to it. Jesus says love them, love on them. In Galatians, um, when it talks about the fruits of the Spirit and, and in other passages in the New Testament, the whole idea isn't that um, we are to show love, per se. In the Greek, it's rendered as we are to become love. We are to personify love. We're not to act lovely. So if you looked up love in the dictionary, it'd say Heather. Picture Heather's face, or Aaron's face, or Sarah's face, or Pauline's face. We are to become love to people. That's hard to do sometimes. Uh, uh, Matthew 5, 43 through 45 talks about loving your enemies. Well, guess what? That's hard to do, isn't it? When somebody's crossed you, hurt you, you're like, I'm going to make you pay. And I get it, because we're on the axis of evil, culturally, about Italian, about Sicilian, Hungarian, and Japanese, right? It's like, we don't, I don't get mad, get even. God's like, no, check that at the door. Check it at the door. It's easy to love our neighbors, right? People that we like, we get along with. It's hard to love people that we don't like, our enemies, people that want our downfall. And this isn't talking about it's okay to you know, take abuse. That's not what this is talking about. It's saying, though, in your heart, you pray for them. And if there are opportunities for you to show kindness, you show kindness. We can't do that on our own power. It takes the Holy Spirit to come in and change our hearts. To break our hearts for the things that break God's heart. I mean, think about this. When Jesus was on the cross, you know, and he's getting jeered at, he's getting spit on, I mean, his body is shutting down. He's dehydrated, he's in excruciating pain. Does he curse people at the end? He's like, haha, guess what? You guys got another thing coming to you, suckers. 
You picked the wrong guy. No. His prayer is, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Forgive them. And you're to be likewise. Mother Teresa, um, in her book, Total Surrender, says this. The more repugnant the work, the greater should be our faith and cheerful devotion. That we feel repugnance is but natural, but when we overcome it for love of Jesus, we may become heroic. And Mother Teresa would know about this. You, I would encourage you guys, get this little book. It's an old book. It's called Total Surrender by Mother Teresa. It's got amazing nuggets. I was just reading it and I was weeping. I mean, the stuff that she says in here is beautiful. And if anybody knows about loving the, the, the unlovable, it's Mother Teresa. You know, people that have been thrown away by society, and they internalize that, and they're like, I'm nothing, I'm worthless. And she just, she and her sisters, with the charity would just love on them and bring people back to life. All right, number four. Love engages in real conversations about real issues in real places. Let me read that again. Love engages in real conversations about real issues in real places. In other words, love goes where the people are. That's not a sanitized version of love. It's not neat and tidy. Let's look at this... Um, I'm not going to read the entire thing, but it's this uh, Jesus with the Samaritan woman in the well. So if you get your Bible, if you want to, it's going to be up on the screen too, I think. But uh, let's look at John 4, 1 through 26. Okay, so here's the setup. Jesus has just finished interacting with the Pharisees. Surprise, surprise. And um, he and his group of guys, the disciples, are going to mosey on to another town. And so the quickest way um, to get to where they're going is to go through the town of Samaria, the area of Samaria. Okay? And so we're not going to read the whole thing. We're going to kind of skip around. So if you want to go back and read it for continuity, you can. But what we're going to do is we are going to start at uh, verse 4. So John 4, 4. He, Jesus, had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about 6 in the evening. Now what's interesting here is, verse 6, uh, when it says Jesus was... Let's say on a spiritual quest and worked out this marketing plan. No. Jesus was worn out from his journey and sat down the well. In the, 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 the Greek, it's, it's kind of like this, um, he sat down at the well because he was so exhausted. It's like a cause and effect thing. He just, he had to do it. I think a lot of times we forget that Jesus was really human, which means that, you know, he had a he succumbed to human stuff. Like when he was hungry, he had to eat. When he was thirsty, he had to drink water. When he was exhausted, he had to rest. And I just think this is great. Like this is such a real situation. I was just 
this whole thing, it's like Jesus wasn't like, okay, if I go through Samaria, I'm going to bump into this lady, and I'm going to come up with some ridiculous reason to engage in conversation with her. No, he's just tired, and he's exhausted, and he needs something to drink. And his disciples have gone off into town to get, like, groceries. So he's by himself. And I just, I just love the detail. I love that detail because it's so real. All right. Verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, for his disciples had gone into town to buy food. Verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans? I, I don't know that we have this um, level of, like, I'm sure we do places, but this deeply ingrained level of socioeconomic, cultural <coughs> stratification. The Jews despised and hated the Samaritans because the Jews view the Samaritans as being um, just disgusting. They were jack Jews, basically. So Samaria got, or the area of Samaria got invaded by Gentiles. And the Samaritans stayed, some of them stayed, and they intermarried with the Gentiles. And so as a result, you know, they weren't pure Jews, and they became defiled and unclean. And they kind of half-practiced some of the Jewish law and half did it. Okay, so they are just, and this woman, and so this woman's a Samaritan, so that's mark number one against her. Mark number two, well, she's a woman, first of all. Mark number two is that she's Samaritan. And then number three we find out is that she liked the men. <laughs> okay, but Jesus doesn't avoid talking to her. He, engage, he engages her, and her response is like, in verse 9, what's up? Why are you talking to me? You know, you know our people don't talk. We don't do this. And especially Jesus being a single man, a single Jewish man. It was just like, there was, there was all kinds of bad taboo written all over this story. Like, just, you just, this was not ever going to happen, ever. But this shows Jesus' heart for people. And Jesus says, he starts talking to her. He's like, well, if you knew the gift that I had, you'd be like, hey, let's talk. Give me a drink. Okay, so let's skip down real quick to 16. So they have this little banter about living water, back and forth. Now what's interesting here is verse 16, Jesus says, go call your husband and come back here. And what does she say in 17? I don't have a husband, she answered. Jesus says, you have correctly said, I don't have a husband. Ding, ding, ding. Ten points. For you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. So she's shacking up with some guy that's not even her husband. Um, okay, so let me just go over this real quick. Between 10, verse 10 and 16. Jesus wasn't trying to shame the woman, okay? Their conversation about living water here, what Jesus is getting at when he's asking her, when he's like, why do you have so many husbands, basically? Jesus knew the answer. It was like when God... When Adam and Eve fell, right, and they they, were, they realized that they were naked, they're like, whoa, we're naked. They're trying to make clothes for themselves that don't work, right? And God comes to them in the cool of the evening, not at mid-noon, scorching, or in the dead of night. He comes at a very unthreatening hour. He's like, and he just kind of strolls into the, the garden, right? 
God's like, so what you guys doing? <laughs> he, he gives them a chance to engage with him and to confess. He doesn't bring the hammer down. And that's kind of what Jesus is doing here with this woman. He knows her past. The law, and the law you could have, the maximum of marriages you could have was three. And this woman is like on six, with a guy that's not even her husband. So Jesus, when he's talking to her here, is not, in verse 16, he's like, go call your husband. He's not trying to shame her into repentance. 16 has been preceded by their conversation about living water. Jesus is trying to ask this woman, what are you hungry for? Why are you so hungry that you have been through so many men? What are you looking for? That's what Jesus was after. And he's trying to give her a chance to engage with him. This is a really awkward, can you imagine that? Can you imagine bumping into somebody at Starbucks? Okay, I spend a lot of time at Starbucks, obviously, so that's my doors. Can you imagine that? Like, just, <laughs> you go to order your drink or you get something from your barista and you're like, so, how many, uh, you know, how many people do you slept with or how many, how many times do you get married? How awkward would that be, huh? And I don't think God calls us to engage in like inappropriate conversations. But I do think God asks us to engage in conversations maybe that makes us awkward, but he's prompted us. He says, I need you to go show your love, my love to these people, to this person. And what I want us to get from this, okay, so, uh, so in verse 21, Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, okay, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. They, they worshiped at another temple, and Jesus is trying to say, let's skip down, actually, to 26. And she's like, she's starting to get the idea that he's not just a prophet. He's not just some guy who's trying to hit on her. Verse 26, he says, I am, Jesus told her, the one speaking to you. This is the first time in John, this is the first of the I am's in John, where Jesus reveals himself. All through his previous interactions with the Pharisees, they're like, are you the, are you the Messiah? And he skirts around it. Everybody's like, it is like you say it. He doesn't, out, he doesn't come out and just say it. He comes out to this woman and says, I'm it. I, I am him. You know, your, your five men, your six men that you've been through? That's just the six that we know about here. Well, guess what? I'm the last man that you'll need because I am he. I am your savior. I am the one that you've been looking for. So here, here's what I want us to get. Let me read this to you. Jesus' evangelistic method on this occasion was to start where the woman was with something material earthly or practical, that they both had in common, which was what? The desire for water, because she was coming to get water too. He then captured her curiosity by implying that he was just not whomever or whoever he appeared to be, and that he could give her something very valuable. And I just like how this is, you know, real love, love that comes from God is not a clean freak. It doesn't set up all these boundaries and stipulations. So put on surgical love and say, let's, let's spend time together. Real love that comes from the heart of God can be messy and get awkward 
But do you know what happens? We're not going to go there and look, but later on in the passage, guess what this woman does? She is so captured by the love of God and Jesus. She's like, this is the one I've been looking for. This is him. This is the great I am. She runs into town and she tells everybody about Jesus, the Samaritans. Because of Jesus' act of love, and he was willing to go where she was. It was like, come visit me at the temple, and we'll talk. Get yourself ritually pure, and then we'll talk. He took water from this woman. Like, in the Jews' eyes, that made Jesus clean, unclean and for all eternity. Jesus is all about just man, being real, no pretenses. Jesus didn't have a master plan with this woman. He wasn't like, all right, I'm going to casually saunter in there. And I'm going to start spouting scripture. And I'm going to make her feel guilty about what she's doing. And I'm going to cause her to repent. No! He engages her on a very human, practical level. And that's what we're called to do. I think a lot of times as believers, maybe, we get freaked out by people that aren't believers or People that look different than us or whatever. God's like, I need you to be my mouth, my eyes, my hands, my feet. And go tell people about me. Go go be my love to these people. Uh, 1 John 3.18. And let me tell you this too. Jesus... When we look at how Jesus approached people and how he interacted with people, it was never like, God bless you, beep beep, and he drives off. He like walks with people, he talks with people. You know the guy that he, at the pool, he like spits on his eyes. Who does that? Jesus does. Jesus literally got his hands dirty when he engaged with this person. I just think that just, it just blows my mind. First uh, John three eighteen says, little children, let us, not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. God needs us to be his hands, his feet, to give people hugs when they're pushing us away and saying, no, I don't, I don't need that, I don't do that. Um, this guy, Gary Inrig, who's a pastor, writer, theologian, he wrote this in his book called The Parables. Love is not a sentimental feeling. Rather, it is sacrificial action. It means interrupting my schedule, expending my money, risking my reputation, ruining my property even for a stranger, so that I can do what is best for him. I have the band and the ushers to my please. I think we have to remember who we are in God, who we are in Christ, and that we are not our own. Here's my challenge to you guys this week. Ask God to bring somebody to your mind that needs loving. And see how you can love on them. It doesn't have to be like extravagant or a big gift. But I want you to find somebody this week that you can love on in that way. 
This is, and I'm not necessarily talking about, I'm talking about the coffee love. So if you like somebody here, like, hey. <laughs> like, who needs loving on this week? Ask the Spirit, say, God, I need. Who can I talk to? Who can I encourage? And ask God to speak to her. How can you touch that person's life? Like I said, maybe it's just like, hey, how are you? And you actually hold the gaze to see what their answer is and their response. And be like, okay, great, see you later. God bless, talk to you later. Or you talk to people. People in the know or whatever. Sometimes what I do is, um, like I do video video things. Like I'll do a, like a video recording. My song just be like, I love you, I'm praying for you this week, and I'll send it to somebody. And I, I suck at doing selfies. My sister gets mentioned out on Facebook. The heart is there. Maybe just little things like that. You know? I guarantee there are people in your lives right now that need to be shown the love of God. And you are the person to do it. Alright, let's pray. Dear God, Lord, it is a joy to give back to you, Father, because you first gave to us. We didn't have to sign an agreement. You just freely gave so, God, we tie back to you right now to say we love you. We give back to you, God, out of an abundance of joy and love and hopefulness, God. Just take this offer and we pray. We pray that it be a sweet aroma to you, Jesus.